Dotnet Rocks, episode 1044, with guest Udi Dahan. Recorded Tuesday, September 30th, 2014. back here we are hey richard hi buddy just had a nice lunch here in brooklyn at the dumbo yes the dumbo kitchen dumbo kitchen down under the manhattan bridge overpass there you go it's the part of brooklyn right below the manhattan bridge and, it, and it's a really industrial feeling area a lot lots of old brick and, and bad roads yeah but it's being reminds, sort of revitalized reminds me of limerick ireland for some reason oh really yeah i don't know just has that old world Brick, brick and cobblestone, little little banged up. Yeah. It's a working area. Anyway, we're here at NSPCon, uh, Udi Dahan's conference around the end service bus product, and uh, having a great time. Udi is here. We're going to talk to him in just a minute. But first, let's roll that funky music. Oh, boy. All right, buddy, what do you got? Feedly. Feedly? Feedly.com. Oh, Feedly. Okay. No, not feed me. Uh, that, that just happened, but or 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 feedly, where I'm like, what do you want to do with my feet exactly? <laughs> feedly, feedly. Okay. It's basically a remember aggregators, remember RSS aggregators, right? Back huh. in the day, they were so much fun, and we use them for blogs and stuff. Well, now just about everybody publishes news bits and pieces of information in RSS, not just blogs and and feedly is a really convenient, really easy, and free to start. Uh, aggregator. Oh, nice. And uh, just go to feedly.com and check it out. They have apps too. So yeah. it's great. So um, one of the things that I miss on the Windows phone is a, well, I missed until I found a, uh, Weave. Right. Was a really good news aggregator that I could just look at. And I'm, I mean for news news, not right. for blogs or whatever. So um, this sort of solves that problem. It's just generic, and there's lots and lots and lots and lots of sources. And uh, so is Feedly like the replacement for the Google Reader? Yeah, I don't know. I never got into the Google Reader, yeah. so I couldn't Go tell you. Google shut that thing down. So yeah, it does sound like an aggregation point for lots of RSS feeds that so you can just get your stories in one place. Yeah, and there's a few of them out there, but this one I've been using for a bit, and it works really, really well. Nice. Of course, they also have apps for iPhone, iPad, Android, phone, tablet, Kindle, Windows 8, Windows Phone, BlackBerry, Symbian, Mac OS, Firefox Phone, WebOS, and the desktop. Nice. So almost everything. Generic desktop. In other words, HTML. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Feedly. Hope you like it. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 798, the one we did with Chris Patterson. We were talking about mass transit, which is Chris's approach to service buses. Yes. And, uh, you know, similar stuff to the things that Udi does as well. You know, there's a bunch of different ways to skin this cat, so we, to speak. We did a show on mass transit yeah, a while ago. That's the yeah, one yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. the comment from. Yep. And this, uh, the comment here is from Eugene, who's, it's, it's kind of a generic comment around these things, but it, it spoke to me as well. He said, I started to listen to the show while commuting to work. This topic is interesting to me as we were trying to move our project to Azure. Mm. Particularly, we will be using Azure service bus relays to broadcast messages. And to my understanding, the reliability and scaling is handled for us by the cloud. This topic of crucial importance in self-hosted applications. Yeah. And unfortunately, this issue was not discussed in the show. And I think it's become more and more important as developers uh, and the DevOps movement are becoming stronger and stronger. Yeah. I don't know that 
Azure Service Bus definitely ties to the DevOps movement so much as this idea that we have widely distributed systems sometime in the cloud, and you got to be able to pass meshes around efficiently on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, Eugene, thanks so much for your comment. I, I appreciate it. It's certainly uh, an, a topic I think we can dig into a little bit here, just in the sense of how do you move messages around efficiently and how do you make sure they get there? There are patterns for this. So uh, thanks for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And that brings us to Udi. Udi Dahan is one of the world's foremost experts on service-oriented architecture and domain-driven design and also the creator of N Service Bus, the most popular service bus for .NET. Welcome, Udi. It's good to be back. Uh, thanks for inviting us to your conference, Udi. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been great having you guys. And it was a simple trip down for us. Richard was at my house. We yeah. Were, we just drove down a couple we hours. Made an adventure out of it, really, and had a good time. And it's such a cool location. This We're in this crazy loft space with giant old beams from 100 years ago. And yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's nifty. It's awesome. So uh, we have, we we did a show in April about End Service Bus. And at the end of the month, we will be publishing the uh, the panel that we did about uh, service service architecture yeah, and really. service buses in general, and yeah, sort of the, where these things are going. Yeah, sort of the history and the the future. So uh, we you wanted to talk about CQRS today because we talked about it with you on the show a long time ago, 2012, I think, right, Richard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but things have changed a bit, and we want to just uh, sort of see where your head is at. Yeah. Or have they changed? I mean, CQRS is supposed to be a pattern, right? Martin Fowler says it's a pattern. Yeah. Well, yeah. certainly, <laughs> has adoption changed? I mean, is is this uh, more popular now than it was in 2012? I, I think like any adoption curve, it kind of goes beyond the, the, the early adopters. and and uh, But some things don't always kind of hit mass. And I think yeah. that... Uh, I still see a lot of people applying CQRS or the, the way that they understand CQRS. I wouldn't call CQRS a pattern so much as I'd call it an, an approach right. or a style of thinking, a, a set of questions that you go about asking when tackling a problem uh, where the answers to those questions lead you to a bunch of different solutions rather than saying, okay, this is a cookie cutter. Right. See, CQRS is good, go do it like this. Uh, so when people say it, CQRS is a pattern, uh, a lot of times what's associated to that is the solution part. Yeah, right. But what isn't associated with that is the context. A pattern is a solution in a specific context. Yeah. Right. And I think the context part of CQRS ends up kind of getting washed out. And the context is where you ask the questions. So I'd like to focus our time today on the question part rather than the the answer part. Right. Well, we should probably just first talk about CQS, the the principle of mm-hmm. separating commands and queries. Mm-hmm. And then where that came from, I guess that came from uh, Eiffel, was it? Bertrand Meyer? Wow, yeah. that's old school. It yeah. is. It is. Now, and why was that important? I'm not sure that I can say that, that. That why was that important? I mean, the 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 element of a a command doing something and then asking for for some data back or first querying so that you have the context in order to issue a command. Right. Yeah. I mean, both of them can be viewed either way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see apps all the time do both these things. Right. Right. Write your record. Read the record back. 
right. or check some data and then make a change. Right. Now, doing that at an object level, and so at the time when object orientation was really big in the industry and it was going to change the world. And, sure. And, of course, people, you know, developers are always looking for direct representations of the business problems. So right. we try to kind of do this one-to-one mapping. And what we learned over the years since object orientation came out is objects are kind of little too low level to really try to tie them all the way up to the business problem. Right. So I, I'd say the idea of saying not necessarily at an object level, but at a business level, and that's the bit that I found interesting, that at the business level, we could treat commands and queries differently. And then to kind of take that down to our software, as opposed to saying, no, start at the object level, the most granular level, and then try to separate that out. Right. Um, you know, most objects you'll see do have both types of functionality. And it'll be, I mean, there are certain categories of object that, um, are not query oriented at all. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to be asking them for, for any data. Sure. Um, and incidentally, in in-service bus, we have a category of object, our sagas, mm-hmm. the objects that do long-running workflows that don't, don't do queries. All they do is react to things that are happening around them, do their own thing, and send messages out. Right. They're, not, they're not query at all. So yeah. in that sense, they are a command-centric or message-centric type object okay. rather than a query-centric type object. Um, but as you were saying before, there are a whole bunch of apps that are out there where user modifies some data and when they want to see the data that they modified right, right back. Or they want to fetch some data before they modify it. Right. So when you have a business domain, which is much more that there's higher level of type coupling mm-hmm. uh, in the expectation of reading what I just wrote, if you try to do some command query separation in there, you're going to be twisting yourself into all sorts of knots at a software level to recreate what the end user really wants to see. Right. And you say, oh, no, the query side is is eventually consistent. The user's like, I don't care. I just changed the data. Show me what I just did. Right. And and then you'll say, okay, what we'll do is we'll put like this cache and we'll write to the cache in a temporary state. And when things come back from the event side and... Yeah, you're hiding the body. That's what you're doing. Exactly. (laughs) And and that's why I say that the context of CQRS is really important. And one of the things that pretty much from the early days when I was blogging about CQRS, I I said that a big part of the context is a collaborative domain where you have multiple users working on the same set of data. Right. Because then when I modify some data, I have no way of knowing whether somebody else has also has also modified the data and therefore my expectation of what i'm reading is different because i know i'm in a collaborative domain that right. other things could have happened and therefore i don't have this expectation of well show me what i just submitted so that's the first part of the contextualization of cqrs if you're in like single user crud uh domain and a lot of domains are, though not necessarily all parts of each domain are, a lot of them are relatively simple. As a user, I'm working on a piece of data. Nobody else is going to see right, this right. until I'm done. Right. I just kind of want a scratch pad. Persist this and give it back to me later right. and persist this. Think of it like a CMS, mm-hmm. yeah. right? I write a blog post, but I don't hit publish. It's saved. 
And then I come back the next day and I read what I wrote and I change that and I add an image. As You're long building as it's up a transaction, like you haven't got all right. the pieces done. Right. But this is private data. Right. Single user crud. Nobody sees Once, it until you're done. Exactly. Once I hit publish, now that moves into the public domain. Now I'm in a collaborative environment yes. where people can start doing other things in parallel. And then my expectations are different. Okay. Right. Yeah. So it's not that we say a CMS is a CRUD app. There are parts of it which are explicitly CRUD. There are other parts of it that are more collaborative. The CQRS pattern, that element of saying, okay, there, we're going to do a separation between queries and commands, is only in a business context where it makes sense. And I see so often people kind of try to do a CQRS for everything. Mm -hmm. And then the single user stuff, it just ends up being super duper complicated when you could have just done, you know, UI talking directly back to database without a service layer, right? Without WCF, without in service bus, without entity framework or in hibernate. Sometimes all you want to do is, you know, blog post. I want to take a bunch of JSON from the browser and I want to shove it and store it somewhere. Yeah. Done. And document database is really good for that right. type of single user. You know, just give me some basic validation on this thing and persist it and give it back to me. Right. Yeah. I want and to I'm put never, and a get. And I'm never going to aggregate on it. I'm never going to do any of those things. I just need to put it somewhere where when I ask you for it, you'll give it back to me. Pretty much. Okay. So a big part of, and this is something that I, that myself and Greg Young and other people who have been uh, talking about CQRS for a while have, have stated repeatedly, you're not going to be doing CQRS for your whole app. You're going to be taking chunks of it out and say, this bit is single user. Okay, that bit, you'll do CRUD. And this other bit over here is separate, and that bit you can do CQRS. Never meant to be, I'm going to build a CQRS system. Right, sure. That's kind of like, I'm going to build a hammer kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Like, you it. don't build a hammer kitchen. Yeah. You're going to build a kitchen, and you're going to use a whole bunch of tools. A hammer might be one of them, yeah. but this is not a hammer kitchen. Right. And just to get our definitions correctly, CQS is the principle of separating commands and queries. CQRS is the command query responsibility segregation. So that is the implementation of CQS in objects. Is that fair to say? So I guess the, you know, the, the problem, one of the big problems in software and in the real world is naming things naming is really things. hard. Yeah. Um, so back in the day when me and Greg were, were talking about these principles, you're like, well, what is it? We said, well, this is CQS. It, I mean, it's that same principle, right? We're just yeah. applying it to more modern day problems and programming languages and architecture. It's the principle itself hasn't really changed. Yeah. yeah. When we talked to Martin Fowler about it, Martin's like, yeah, if it was defined then and that was Splitting the context, yeah. then you shouldn't really piggyback on an existing name, come up with a different name. Yeah. So that's how we were like, well, okay, I mean, it really is just command query separation. So our just as a responsibility, it's like, well, okay, we're, what are you separating? In essence, say, well, the responsibility between the command and the query. It was just another letter right. to go in there. And so it's, it, I wouldn't get tied up in the name okay. so much. You could call CQRS the practical application of CQS? Yeah. All right. Although, I mean, again, CQS comes from Bertrand Meyer. I mean, that's the 80s. 
Yeah. That is a long time ago. Eiffel was the business in the 80s, briefly, before C++ kind of blew up its world. Mm. And everybody said, why would I change languages when I can now do objects in the language I want to use? Mm. Because C++ is exactly the same as C. Right? Absolutely the same. It's fine. Everything's going to be fine. Sorry. I'm complaining about old pain. <laughs> there, was a, there was an Eiffel.net, Bertrand Meyer. I do remember that. Made... And he was on stage back when .NET yep. was brand new, saying, just like there was, gonna, there was a Cobalt.net. Remember, remember we we're going to have a whole bunch of .NET languages? Because remember, yeah, that was one of the big selling points of .NET was yeah. that it ran so many all different languages. languages. Uh, yeah, it was spooky to see him after all those years. Uh, all right, sorry, digression. So we got into the context of CQRS and in the particular places where it solves a problem. Maybe we can sort of dig a little bit more around in that space. Right. So let's say you've uncovered a collaborative domain. Yeah. Right? Uh, usually they tend not to be huge in terms of the amount of data, or let's call it the, 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 the breadth of definition of data that you're dealing with. Often mm -hmm. there's a lot of records that make them up. So there's a lot of history. There's a lot of interaction in there. Yeah. So it's in terms of data volumes more so than the, you wouldn't necessarily have 50 joined tables together. That would be your collaborative domain. Right. Often it's quite a bit more narrow, but there's a lot of data that you're going through. Right. Um, now, you know, one of the classical examples of a collaborative domain is the domain of inventory, mm -hmm. right? You sure. have shipments that are coming in and you got purchases that are going out and people yep, say, classic. well, how much do you have? And, you know, what if I want to purchase this amount and when am I going to get it? So ultimately, I mean, if you model this at a product level from a, let's say, a more naive perspective, you say, well, fundamentally, inventory is a product ID and a quantity. Right. Yeah. What's the problem? Yeah. What's hard there? Or if you want to put it in database terms, uh, tables that are being read from and written to frequently by different parties. Right. Yeah. So oftentimes people don't even realize that they're in a collaborative domain. They're thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. product ID, quantity. Close enough. Yeah. And, you know, whenever somebody wants to buy something, we do minus equals. And every time a shipment comes in, we do plus equals. Right. And we're golden. It passes all of our unit tests, passes all of our acceptance tests, ship it. Or maybe in a more high volume example, stock purchases, right? Because you're reading the, the value of a particular stock that you want to buy up until the microsecond in which you buy it. You know, there's a high trend, high high speed version of what we're talking about. Right. The, the 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 stock domain is is designed from the ground up to be able to handle uh, volume and and is uh, and has been modeled to work in a multi party type way quite well. Right. Uh, so anybody who is building stock trading systems, it's kind of a no. This is how we do things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, but simpler type of domains inventory. Uh, it, you're absolutely right. When the volumes go up, sometimes it's known as the Oprah effect. You know, mm -hmm. somebody comes on Oprah with their product, with their book, their whatever. Right. And all of a sudden, you get a massive amount of traffic. Or the slash dot effect in our world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the issue with that kind of load, and that's one of the things that I don't think gets talked about enough in software development in general, is that we're always talking about load testing and how will your system scale. Mm -hmm. We don't always take the time to think that 
load is not necessarily evenly dispersed across all of the things in your system. Sure. It's not a million people hitting your site purchasing a million different items. What gets you is when you have, you know, 10,000 people all wanting exactly the same thing. Right. And now that poor little record in the database. Yeah, it's working really hard. <laughs> well, that's the thing because you're doing updates, you're constantly having to lock it. Right. Yeah. So as you're, so you have to read it to get its status. And the problem is you can't just read it. You have to read it and lock it. Right. Because you could have right. multiple readers yeah. at the same time. And you have to make sure that if I read it in my transaction, it's like there are five books. I need to instantly grab one of those. But if there are 10 transactions all reading the, there are five books left, they can't all say, and I want it and for that to work. Yes. Yeah. So you're talking about a lock on read, and then you end up with 9,999 transactions that are waiting for that thing to clear. All of those transactions are holding up connections to right. the database. So it doesn't matter that there are 50 other people on the website wanting to buy something else entirely. They just can't connect to the database because right. the connection pool's maxed and out. It, and it's contention over this one record. So it starts with the contention on this one record. Mm -hmm. That's the collaboration problem, yeah. which ends up having this domino effect of draining the database of its resources, which prevents the rest of the site from being able to operate. Yeah. And this is why tools like InServiceBus, which offload this it stick a queue in there so that people on your website can continue to submit stuff so you're not actually losing those requests and then you can process them later on that helps it from becoming a let's call it a pr disaster right uh but your back end is still enormously backed up and people are sending their purchases and they're they, they see on the website it says your email will arrive shortly and they're like dude it's been like an hour, right. three hours. I haven't gotten anything. Right. What do I do? I come back to the website and I can't find my order. Right. And they start phoning you up and just everything goes Healthcare.gov. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But it's that kind of thing. That the, Why the collaborative domain is important is because it takes this problem of scalability and actually says, well, there's a specific subset of that, which is high amount of contention on a specific record. Mm -hmm that can ultimately topple a site and can cause massive business problems. And it's the kind of thing that nobody's really prepared for. All of the testing said, hey, everything's good. Yeah, it's pretty uh, tough to test at, at velocity. And it's tough to tell, even when you build load tests, it's tough to build load tests that look like the user because the users are weird. Well, users are weird, but you know, people who are in the retail space are familiar with this type of, yes. you know. You, um, you put a product on sale, everybody wants to buy that product. <laughs> This is kind of their job. Yeah, that's right? what they want to do. <laughs> so ultimately, that's where CQR starts. says, find these types of things. They're important. They're different. You have to architect them, not like everything else. Sure. And then I'd say what's changed for me since potentially we talked the last time in 2012 is that today I put a much stronger emphasis on the data modeling side of things. Say that while you can offload the processing with queues and you can put events to asynchronously update a read model and all that kind of stuff, if your backend is constantly struggling to keep up, you know, you're, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, no, that's and dramatic. really the only way to do that is to prevent the contention in the database. Right, right. So if your data model is screwed up, 
No amount of code around that is really going to You're solve the problem. You're just trying to bury the body. The exactly. body is the fact that there's one row that everybody cares about. Exactly. Now yeah. you're just going to try and cover that up. So now potentially there are, so the example of inventory, when your command logic is simple to the point of, well, what I need here is really just a plus equals or a minus equals. Right, right. Then you might not need some a really fancy solution, mm -hmm. but you'd want a database that support atomic operations, either atomic increment or decrement operations. Right. Because those types of things are linearizable. It doesn't really matter which order you do plus equals, plus equals, plus equals, minus equals. The result ends up being the same, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, as far as I know, databases like React specifically mm -hmm. support this. It doesn't necessarily require you to do different data modeling. You can have the exact same product ID and quantity, but because the React engine was designed for these kinds of things, mm -hmm. the same type of logic of doing plus equals minus equals is not going to cause everything to back up. Right. They just don't organize their data that way, so you can't get into that problem. Right. Now, the thing is that, you know, .NET developers, we're, you know, if we come to our organization, say, we'd like to use React. They'd say, I'm sorry, you'd like to use what for which? <laughs> like, if there is SQL Server, there is nothing else. What are you speaking of? <laughs> exactly. I say, no, you don't understand the supportability and the maintainability problems around this additional database technology. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is 2014 now, and it's not that NoSQL is as new as it was, but it's still a struggle to get it into an organization. Oh, sure. Uh, but in those cases, what we end up doing is, like I said, back to data modeling, is we need to figure out some way to make the database perform a type of atomic increment right. in a non-blocking way. And ultimately that means, well, maybe we can't actually just model it product ID quantity, but we need to have a product ID with a kind of delta operation right. that we're inserting. So in essence, we post a new record right. to the inventory table, say, I would like to take out you know, five units of this, which is right. kind of like the banking domain. This yeah. is how banks manage the balance in your transaction. It's journaling. Exactly. Every change is its own row. Right. Yeah. But ultimately, it's changing the data model. And also the business logic as well is changed to reflect the fact that it's not an update operation anymore, that I am posting a new transaction to this logical account. Right. And that when I want to read out the status of the account, I need to read out some kind of history, right. the transactions, and roll that up. Right. Okay. In aggregate. So that's where sort of the basics of the data modeling come from. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is it now? It must be that happy time again. Yeah, time to reduce our inventory of funny. Minus one, minus one, minus one, minus <laughs> one, minus one, minus one, minus one, minus one. That's a lot of minuses. Minus one. Are we back ordering funny? Is that what you're minus doing? Minus one. Nice. All right, plus one. <laughs> That's actually time to give away a Component One Studio Enterprise to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who wins... Whether you're building the most modern touch-enabled apps or maintaining and updating legacy applications, Component One's flagship product, Studio Enterprise, helps to deliver rich, responsive desktop and web apps on time and under budget. ComponentOne.com. Nice, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Janelle Hatcher. Congratulations, Janelle. Yeah. Another surprised, shocked, nay, shocked, <laughs> I say, 
member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Just won a big pile of awesome from Component One Studio Enterprise. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show we give away great stuff from our sponsors like Component One. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. Udi, your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy, sir? You keep asking me that question, and it's, <laughs> it gets harder every time because i got to come up with something new. And What don't you have? So many toys, so little time. So many toys, so little time. Have you heard about the thing Phil Hack talked about the 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 lock uh, that you the doorknob that you can lock with your iPhone? Yeah. Have you heard about that? I, I I did hear about that. It scares me the fact that you know what? How will I get in my house when my <laughs> phone, phone battery is dead, <laughs> or or you lose your phone? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, as long as your phone remains locked hopefully it yeah. won't uh that you actually have to unlock your I phone in order to unlock your house just an opportunity for more ip addresses in my house right now my doorknobs <laughs> have ip addresses too <laughs> yeah. you know what we need we need an ip address as a service <laughs> yeah i think it's dhcp but <laughs> somebody who is it that said they wanted to cover the walls in one room with raspberry pies oh, i don't remember but you remember that one that yeah. was creepy one 35 bucks a shot you could do it it's a lot of Raspberry Pi computers. Could, I'm trying to give you some creative options here, Rudy. <laughs> Maybe you just want a nice camera or a new MacBook Pro. You can blow five grand on a MacBook Pro without even trying hard. Yeah. Um, I think that what I want is, yeah, have you seen those, um, the drones? Now they're, they're doing drones that can kind of talk to each other and fly in formation. Yeah. And yeah, very the, the first time that I read that, I was like, okay, that's interesting. Then I saw the video and how fast those things change formation. They're like in flight in a plane and they're going through a vertical thing. Yeah. And they just kind of rearrange themselves in like a quarter of a second. Yeah. And just pass it through around obstacles. So it's scary. It's not just it's not just the drone. It's the software control and Everywhere. the speed that these things operate. It's very frightening. It's mind blowing. Two other drone stories I saw in the past day or so. One was great footage of a of a wedding where they it's they're too clearly doing you know the bride and the groom are off in a pretty sight you know making googly eyes at each other so they're getting aerial photographs so they're using a drone to do the flybys and they lose control of the drone to just spike the groom oh <laughs> you, know, you just see the thing get closer 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 it's not slowing down wham <laughs> oh that's funny the drone survived upside down but there's there's that one the other one that surprised me did you me. just say that the drone survived the drone survived yeah. know, it's like what you do developers care about the groom forget the groom yeah. what about on my drone. <laughs> That's right. I'm just talking well, for the context. To the next story. You saw the camera flip upside down as this drone you know, yeah. taking its hit. I suspect the guy made it. That's kind of an expensive way to go fade to black. Isn't there you it? go. Yeah. Just boom. The other one that blew my mind is a drone that wraps around your wrist. Yeah. So experimental Intel project where it actually looks like a watch almost. And you tap it and it pops open. You sort of toss it off your wrist. And it flies out, takes pictures of you and flies back. That is so I can think of some evil applications for that, actually. There's that something I, very, you know, why is this in a James Bond film yet? 
Yeah. It's probably the problem with making another James Bond film. We just can't think weird enough about what the new supervillain will do. Well, you know, George Lucas did a pretty good thing with drones in, in the... In the Star Trek one through three, Star Wars. Did I say Star Trek? You did. In Star Wars one through three, uh, you know the, those drones got pretty sophisticated. Yeah. In terms of uh, flying around, shooting poison darts, and you know, I think the technology just ends up moving so much faster that by the time someone comes up with an idea that gets incorporated into a script, yeah, that they actually go and decide to start shooting a movie until the movie comes out. The real world technology is just blown right by that. Yeah. So, you know, it's getting stranger and stranger and stranger. And the actual impact it has on society, you know, this just kind of terrifying. Yeah. All right. No more drones. Uh, you know what? Maybe we should do a little call back to the beginning of the show here. We had the fellow, uh, uh, Eugene who was mentioning looking at Azure service bus, which as I understand is a very different creature. From a lot of other service buses, because it it really only focuses on messaging, nothing else. So Azure Service Bus is uh, it, it's a very interesting implementation. I mean, to I'd probably say it's the first, if not the the the, the largest uh, implementation of that type of cloud-level, globally distributed messaging uh, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And to build something like that, retaining low latency and uh, high levels of reliability is quite a feat of engineering. Sure. Uh, and I don't think a lot of developers appreciate that. They're like, oh, How hard just, that actually is. No, oh, it's an HTTP API, and, you know, I call it, and I put in messages, and I get messages out. Yeah, whatever. I don't know what's hard about uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but doing that at, at global scale is, is, is a significant achievement. Uh, but the thing about uh, Microsoft, uh, not just the Azure Service Bus team or the Azure team as a whole, but Microsoft as a company, they've always taken a very platform perspective, mm -hmm. meaning that, look, we're not going to tell you what's the right way to use this because we don't really know what you're going to be building. Right. Uh, so, you know, the, you know, this is the profile. This is the behavior of the infrastructure itself. Uh, this is how it works. Here are libraries that allow you to use it. But uh, Eugene mentioned some element of reliability. So while, yes, once something is in Azure Service Bus, it will very reliably take care of it. When you're looking at building your system on top of Azure Service Bus, there are no guarantees. I mean, Microsoft's saying, dude, that's your code. Right. You, you know, the fact that we're reliable does not mean that you are reliable by proxy just because you're invoking sure, our APIs. Yeah. Well, there are lots of dumb things that you can do to screw up. And people do that with the cloud all the time. Oh, it's in the cloud. It'll be reliable. Right. It'll be scalable. Like, you could easily create stuff in the cloud that will not scale. Right. It's not going to save you from yourself. Exactly. So uh, that bit about, oh, yeah, you know, by using Azure Service Bus, you know, things are going to be reliable and scalable. I said, well, Azure Service Bus itself is reliable and scalable, right. but if you use it in the wrong way, you can have your data get lost or corrupted or out of sync with data that you put in SQL Azure or somewhere else. Sure, and that's on you. That's not not on Azure. Right. Okay. Uh, that's one of the areas that in 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 Service Bus when we integrated with Azure Service Bus, 
that we wanted to handle because while it itself was reliable, we found out that the many developers running on the cloud didn't know what, what they needed to do and how they needed to do it in order to make sure that uh, if they were in the process of uh, pulling one message off of Azure Service Bus, doing some logic, and putting, you know, uh, publishing some other events out on Azure Service Bus as well, that if, if for whatever reason, their virtual machine that was running that code crashed midway through and then got restarted somewhere else, mm -hmm. if you just use the regular APIs, you get a message and your you know, first line of code, you know, put out another message on Azure Service Bus. Second line of code, persist something to a database. Mm -hmm. Third line of code, do something else. You can crash between those steps. For sure. And then maybe a message goes out with an entity ID that didn't get persisted. Right. Or the entity ID got persisted, but the second event didn't get published. Yeah. So all of these types of edge cases, they don't think about. Say, well, I'm on Azure. It's scalable. It'll it's reliable. It. So yeah. are you saying that the Azure Service Bus doesn't have a queue built into it? No, Azure Service Bus has a queue. And it has this concept of, uh, uh, I think they're calling it um, a lease. That when you pull a message off of the queue, you get a lease. But that element of uh, sending the messages out to Azure Service Bus and RabbitMQ is exactly the same thing. They mm -hmm. don't have these cross-operation transactions. Right. And it makes sense for something like Azure Service Bus to not allow cross-operation transactions because, in essence, what you're doing is locking resources in yep. Azure. And they don't want you to do that. No. So, so the, but a given message can be a transaction, but you can't have multiple messages as a transaction. Exactly. So in essence, what we do in, in Service Bus is when you ask us to publish an event on Azure Service Bus, we say, we hear you, but not just yet. Right. Because we know you might do something else. Mm -hmm. And because we're also in the context of you processing the message, we know you're in the middle of processing that message over there. So we're going to wait until you're done, until the thread of execution comes right back to the beginning. Right. So we know we've recorded all of the operations that you've wanted us to do. And then we can say, okay, now we know you're done. We can take that and we can play that all as a complete set against Azure and make right. sure that you don't miss anything. And we're doing the same thing with RabbitMQ and all of the kinds of queues that don't support these types of uh, multi-operation transactions. I like the verb you just used. We can play all that against Azure. I <laughs> right. really like that because it's it, it solidifies the concept of what you're really doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, kind of and record I think this, replay. Yeah, this does relate to CQRS fairly well because you are talking about essentially message passing to your data store. You pass a message for a set of commands, and it sends you back a response. You pass a message. You know, I need to change the inventory, and what it does on the other end is sort of up to it preferably doing it asynchronously so that you sort of dilute that hotspot effect or you're writing out separate transactions for everything. Well, I'd say that, you know, getting back to the whole issue of CQRS, in mm -hmm. essence, it's taking the concept of non-blocking messaging right. and using those same concepts when going to model your data. Yeah. Now, again, the database guys will say, we were first 
In other words, we were doing transaction logs before all of the middleware guys came along. Sure. And then, of course, the middle guys, middleware guys will turn around and say, well, actually, we were first because, because before we actually did the thing that became known as middleware, we were doing any, everything by just moving files around. Right. So that was a poor man's messaging, but that came before the database technology. It doesn't matter <laughs> who was first. I mean, there's yeah. always this arguments about pedigree. Right. Uh, right. So it doesn't really matter which one is first. The same ideas apply mm -hmm. that you want this type of non-blocking operation and you need to design explicitly for it. Right. Uh, now, again, if you can use database technology, which has these type of automatic or sorry, uh, um, atomic increment operations, well, that'll work if all you're doing is operating on an int. Right. If you have more complex scenarios, you're going to have to do more complex modeling. Sometimes that might mean using a graph database. Sometimes that might mean using a columnar store. But the one thing that I'd say, and I'd really want to uh, all the .NET developers out there to, to listen to this and to use this same argument when somebody in the organization says, can't you do that on SQL Server? If you think building a graph database is hard, try building a graph database with your eyes closed and your hands tied behind your back because that's what it means to do it on top of SQL Server. Right. In other words, you don't have access to all of the low-level primitives and control and that, that were needed to build a scalable, reliable graph database to begin with or a scalable, reliable columnar store. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, you end up implementing your own, which is a very poor implementation. And let's face it, this is not your area of expertise. I know it's fun building this stuff. <laughs> uh, but uh, ultimately, it's probably going to hammer your poor SQL Server database to death yeah. and then people say oh no we got to get that off just if it needs to be a graph use a graph right should we remind our listeners what a graph database is for those who don't know so uh graph databases are such where uh in essence you have nodes with relationships between them which can kind of sound like well wait a minute tables yeah and i've got relationships between them but instead of thinking of a table as having multiple rows each node is a single record Okay. And you could, so this is often used in, uh, in domains where. So just to back up, relationships are not between tables and columns. They're, they're between, between data. That's right. Yeah. You're going directly to the data level. So, uh, a lot of times you can use this for, um, modeling things like, you know, I met Richard the other day. Now, Richard is a node, I'm a node, mm -hmm. the other day is a node. Right. So the, on the connection between us, there's a connection to the other day. And we talked about .NET. .NET is a node that this specific connection at that point in time was there. So it allows us to model things that happened. Sounds, sounds a lot like how a brain works. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's neural nets yeah. are examples of graphs. Yeah. Mm. So the, the principles of graphs are kind of at a data structure level. Neural yeah. nets are above yeah. that in mm -hmm. computer science. Yeah. But ultimately it's saying when you have a rich problem domain that can't necessarily all be very easily cataloged into yeah. very simple things where the relationships can evolve over time. Right. 
graph databases are a very good solution to that. Mm -hmm. And in a bunch of collaborative domains, they work really well. Sure. Because there isn't this element of modeling everything as a single gigantic record. Right. right. Creating that hierarchical structure around it. Exactly. Well, Relational databases have their place. We've been abusing them for a while. Mm-hmm. But it seems more and more we're just not afraid of this idea that you store the data in the form that you received it. Long before, you know, rarely do we receive data in a relational form. We typically transport our data there because we want to do analytics on it. Yeah. But it always comes in in a different form. And I'm digging that more and more. We say, once you get it in, store it in the form that it's in. We'll decompose it later well, into that's, what the relational you know, That's the thing. Whenever somebody says... You know, the reason we need the data in relational form is we can perform analytics on it. Right. But the database community has said, wait, you want to do analytics on this data? We actually need a star schema for that. Right. And a star schema is not actually a relational schema. No. So saying we need to transform this into one form in order to transform it to a totally different form so that we can perform analytics on it says, well, wait a minute, why is that interim step really needed again? When it, and one would argue normalization was really about saving disk space back in the day when disk space was expensive. Absolutely. Store everything once because mm-hmm. disk space is expensive. It just isn't anymore. You know, we're buying multi-gigabyte solid-state drives for tens of dollars. Storage is cheap. Yep. And confusing data is expensive. You know, transforming and... uh you know, querying large amounts of data uh, beyond the fact that the, the well, we shouldn't say that the computation is a, is in itself expensive, but sometimes just getting enough of the data or being a you know what data you need mm-hmm. is is an intensive process. Uh, but anyway, back to the CQRS discussion, just so we can uh, n- you know put that to rest. I'd say that. Uh, one of the things that has changed for me during this time frame and that I've started trying to to teach much more explicitly is that object relational mapping has done some harm in that it has guided developers to focus entirely on their in-memory object model Mm -hmm. and not care at all about the actual data model behind the scenes. Yeah. And the thing is that if you're in a collaborative domain, you have to work the other way around. Right. You have to start at the data model itself because if you don't control that, then you're going to be stuck. And no amount of object-oriented gymnastics is going to change that. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big DDD guy. Yeah. But I got to tell you, sometimes you got to put that, you know, put the domain model down, get your <laughs> hands away from the keyboard and let's start focusing on the data modeling. Right. And, you know, nine times out of 10, the data model ends up being simple enough to the point. It's like, Hey, if all my command is, is just inserting a record to a database. Yeah. Why exactly do I need to have an object model on top of this? I mean, an insert right. statement is pretty simple. You know, I could, yeah, it, with opening up the connection and closing the connection and, and committing the transaction, it might be five lines of code yeah. altogether. Do I really need three different classes and relationships and ORMs to manage yeah, that? Yeah, lazy writing behind it. Like, well, that's think, necessary. I think the reason people use ORMs is because of repetition. You know, they, it's fine to do that five lines of code once. But, you know, times a thousand, it becomes a problem just for development, sheer development time. But I agree. ORMs have gotten us a little bit lazy. 
Well, and it also speaks to, you know, did you need the relational database in the first place? Like, wouldn't you just rather go take that object and stick it in a document store? Mm-hmm. And sometime later, we'll decompose it. So part of the issue with document stores, I'm glad you brought that up. Document stores are great mm-hmm. for the single user crud parts of your system. Mm-hmm. Right. Because then you're, you're, you're doing single document transactions and only one user at a time is working on a single document. True. One guy's great. taking your order. Exactly. Mm-hmm. However, when you're in the collaborative domain and you have lots of, lots of transactions mm-hmm. that all want to operate in parallel, but usually they want to operate on parts of the document. Yes. Right. Then you're back in trouble. And that's when, in essence, you need to take that document and pull it apart into little Decompose bits. It. And suddenly the relational database makes more sense because it's well, pretty much. good at decomposition. Uh, I'm not sure that I'd say a relational database by itself makes right. sense. Uh, I mean, you can go and model it into a relational database. Mm-hmm. But as we said, sometimes things that you would have thought to just model it as, you know, uh, a simple quantity column for your inventory. Right. And thinking, oh, I don't need to break that apart. It, it doesn't really matter whether it's in a document database you know, product ID and quantity, or in a relational database with product ID and quantity. Right. The the fact that you just have a quantity in there means it's wrong. It doesn't really <laughs> now, matter I mean, where, where you put it. There'd be kind of a distinction here. A given document would be a given order. So I have the quantity needed for that order. I'm not trying to carry the whole inventory value. Well, that's fine. Then you'd need to do some sort of uh, cross-document query to actually figure to out be how able much to figure sold. out how 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 many are there right now right and can i submit a new order document right. now the thing is that document databases like mongodb don't allow you to do cross document transactions okay so at the same time as you're prof- again you're in a collaborative domain mm-hmm. at the same time as you're doing this kind of uh indexed read operation to figure out whether there actually is enough inventory for you to be able to get your order in there mm-hmm. Another person's doing exactly the same thing, but because you don't have cross-document transactions, both of you think, oh, yeah, I've got the last item, and you get your order in there, but, you know... One of you's not going to get it. Exactly. So, Woody, what's your, what's your um, opinion of the idea of, you know, when you have a pub-sub system like a service bus, that you can have multiple listeners and data stores that are structured differently for the different things that you're going to use them for, such as... You could have a document database hanging off of a of a service bus, and you could have a relational database hanging off a service bus for doing queries, and you could have, uh, you know, some other type of structured data, mm-hmm. but all all would be replicated because you have this one, you know, because everything's going through the service bus. Mm-hmm. Does that? I mean, of course, that brings up more complexity issues and keeping things in sync. But it seems to me that I mean. That's why we have all these different database designs is because there's some are stronger at certain things than others. Right. So I guess I'd say that uh, I agree with most of what you said, except for the technical, the technical focus, uh, where I'd say that where there are multiple subscribers to a given event, usually those subscribers will be representative of different business domains. Okay. So sure. for example, when an order is fulfilled, there's a, a certain part of what's called vendor-managed inventory. In essence, the vendor is watching my orders and knows based on that, okay, I need to ship you some more product. I right. don't even have to wait for you to pick up the phone, mm-hmm. right? I have a different domain that deals with loyalty. 
Mm -hmm. says, oh, actually, I see that this is the 10th order that you've submitted this month. Yeah. Uh, I better start doing something in the loyalty domain in order to start marketing to you more heavily because I see you as a high potential customer. Now, it could be that the vendor-managed inventory is using a SQL database and the loyalty is using a document database, but it's not because of the difference in database technology that we created them as separate subscribers. It's saying that each of these domains has interest in the fact that this business event occurred. Well, I would say that you you would ha- you would choose different technologies based on their strengths and weaknesses, exactly. right? Based I mean, on the business domain. This is domain. the classic idea as a reporting database where yep. you have organized for different purposes. Yeah, it's flattened out, right? Because yeah. it because ninety joins is just not acceptable when you're trying to pull up a report. However, you know when you, you when you want it all decomposed in in terms of relational. Uh, you know, because you need to do more different things that way. This is what I'm saying. We still, you know, we're still running into the same core issue, which is whether I store all the orders and documents, I need to find out what the inventory is. So I have to thumb across all the documents. If I'm storing a journal of every time we make a sale, I create a row that says I decrement that item. Right. I still have to get an aggregate of that to figure out the inventory. Right. One way or the other, this is a hard problem to actually yeah. know what the inventory level is. Right. That, so that's why in CQRS we talk about the fact that queries can and often will be stale. Right. It's saying because even the instant that I calculated what the total is, uh, and More I'm starting to show you, they, they're coming in. Yeah. I can't and don't want to stop the rest of the world from right. collaborating while you're looking at the screen. Right. Okay. And I, as a user, when I'm looking at the screen, I understand that the rest of the world is still happening. And I've also seen in CQRS patterns, you show an inventory level, but there's a date stamp side. This was the moment at which I grabbed this inventory, and right. it was a moment that was some time ago. Right. Well, I mean, banks do that. Uh, you know, every time they show you the balance, this is as this of. is your balance as of. Right. And it's clear to you because now you're not thinking, oh, ha, ha, I just wrote a check and handed it to somebody. They and don't know. They don't know <laughs> that I'm going to withdraw more. <laughs> Uh, they have the systems in place in, in order to manage all of the, right. the the risk around that. But the sense of non-blocking querying, of getting close enough mm-hmm. to the current inventory, so that you have a sense of it. Right. I mean, one of the when I've had conversations around high velocity systems, one of the things we've talked about is stuff like what happens if you sell more than you have. I mean, right. This is a known business pattern. We call mm-hmm. it back ordering. Exactly. Right. And all of a sudden, if you're willing to accept back orders. We have more variables on how we can handle this, that we can be a little more tolerant. We can go faster in exchange mm-hmm. for the possibility that we'll sell something we don't have. Right. Now, that's something that sometimes requires a shift in the developer's mindset mm-hmm. because developers are very big on validation. Right. We Rightness. We're big on rightness. Exactly. We want things to be right. Yeah. And we say... It doesn't make sense for there to be negative inventory. We need to validate that there actually is inventory before right. we accept this purchase. But they're two different things. An order and an object and the item are not the same thing. Well, yes, but again, it's a if the developer came and looked at it and, and did not look did not think of the domain as an integer. Right. That's where the problem starts. Is once you say, "Oh, it's just an integer," You, you don't look to ask other questions. Right. Okay. Sure. Once you start saying, well, actually, there's a transaction log that's going on here. Mm-hmm. And, and because you're modeling the collaboration, say, well, doesn't this mean that we can get into negative inventory territory? Isn't that bad? Question mark. 
rather than let me write code to prevent that from ever happening. Right. Integer must, you know, assert greater than equals to zero. Right. So Engage. in that sense, yes, you know, it ultimately means those orders will be delayed. And sometimes people get those emails from Amazon. Sure. Uh, where they say, oh yeah, it was back ordered. It will be arriving two weeks later. So to summarize, engage brain before type code. <laughs> <laughs> As simple and hard as that is to do. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, interesting assumptions that we can make as developers and impair our business process in the process. So, Udi, uh, congratulations on shipping and uh, your new version and uh, and NSBCon. It was a success. You sold out. Uh, yeah, yeah, full and, house. And thanks again for educating us as you always do. Oh, my pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you guys. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time.